This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! In Bunny Girl Senpai this week, I just want to start off by saying, man, Sakata is a freaking champion. Just like last episode, the cliffhanger from the previous week was addressed immediately at the beginning of this week's as Sakata lays out our missing backstory to Mai and Nodoka. It is during this backstory that we learn just why Sakata is such a champion. It originates in his encounter with Shoko, a piece of which appeared in the dream which made him emotional last time. Shoko's speech about Sakata being able to see further because he is taller, or how some people like the sea breeze and others don't, is basically a description of the concept of empathy. It comes from recognizing that your experience is not universal, that there are, are as many worlds as there are people, because the world seems like a slightly different place to each of us. No one believes Sakata about how he got his injury. His experience is too different from theirs, and they can't accept it. Shoko points out that now that he has had that experience of going through something and having no one believe him, he is set up to be incredibly kind to others. He will empathize with the idea that they are going through something that he may not understand, but is completely real to them. What's more, she has believed him and empathized with his situation. So now he also knows just how good it feels to be on the receiving end of this kindness. Shoko further says that she didn't have any big dreams or high hopes, but she found meaning for her life anyway. That meaning was that her life was an opportunity to become kinder, to be a slightly kinder person each day than she was the day before. This idea affects Sakata on a deep level, so much so that even remembering it years later leaves him teary-eyed, and he asks her if he can live his own life this way. He adopts this purpose for his own. It's why he's completely ready to believe Mai when she spins the story of disappearing, or to go through the extreme lie of a false relationship for Tomoe, or drop everything to try to assist Futaba. And it's why he is so unwavering in his commitment to his sister. The very first action we see him take after this new purpose is when he buys the notebook for Kaede on the way home from the hospital. Writing every day is something the doctor has suggested, so he wants to set her up with the tools to do so. On the front of this notebook is a place for one's name, and Sakata has already thought ahead to the opportunity this presents. He brings up the subject of her name, but she rushes to insist that she knows how to write it. He then suggests that she write it in hiragana rather than kanji. So here's a quick aside on Japanese. There are three writing systems, kanji, hiragana, and katakana. Hiragana and katakana characters correspond directly to Japanese sounds. They aren't just phonetic alphabets, but they can be used that way, as anything written in either kana will tell you how to pronounce it 100% of the time. The third system, kanji, is not that way. 
Lots of kanji have at least two pronunciations, and lots of sounds can be represented by multiple different kanji. On top of that, kanji characters themselves each represent a word or idea. If you watched Zombieland Saga this season, they do a gag with this fact back when they first picked their name, and Saki wrote it on the board in kanji before switching it to katakana. This is why you frequently see the exchange in anime when characters will give their name, and then follow up by explaining which characters it is spelled with, as Kaede does here. It's the logic behind Mai's joke earlier about how her own name is spelled by giving no clarification at all. She was famous enough that it was a sure bet that Sakuda already knew. The reason for this routine is because most names are spelled with kanji, but not only can the same sound be spelled with different kanji, the same kanji can be pronounced differently. However, it is not unheard of, especially for women, to have their personal name be spelled with hiragana instead. That is the recommendation that Sakata gives Kaede here, as although it will be said the same way, it will be rendered differently. A different name for a different person. He's telling her that he recognizes that who she is after her memory loss is not the same person, and that's okay. For now, she doesn't have to try to be Kaede spelled with kanji, but can just be Kaede spelled with hiragana. Kaede rather than Kaede-san. Suddenly, it makes sense that she always refers to herself in the third person. It only shows up for part of a frame that I could find, but it looks like the sign on her bedroom in the present has her name spelled in hiragana still, instead of the sign we saw at the beginning of this episode that has it spelled in kanji. Now this little action of Sakata's with the name is an incredible kindness, arrived at only because he attempted to understand what she must be feeling because he put into practice the approach to life that Shoko professed. Kaede is like a new being, yet everyone is expecting her to be someone else. He is telling her that instead of that someone else, you can just be who you are right now. I accept you as you are. Even without memories, you are a whole person, and I will treat you that way. While this is a touching display, and cements Sakata as the central support in Kaede's life, it eventually leads to the real dilemma of this episode. Trying to get Kaede to return to society, which is something she wants, may end up returning her original memories. But Kaede did not simply forget events or people from her past, she actually had a full episode of dissociation and has been a different person. Returning her memories from the past won't simply add them to her current memories, but will supplant them and will supplant the person she has been for these two years, or however long it is now. If you've grown quite attached to Kaede, then even if you miss Kaede-san, are you really okay with having the girl who is here today just vanish? I think now that this might be part of why Sakata resisted telling Mai and the rest about the memory loss. If he knows that there exists the possibility that she reverts to who she was, she may not remember any of the friendships that she is creating right now. If you knew that about someone, that they may simply cease to know you one day, wouldn't that stay your hand a little bit as far as befriending them? Sakada wants Kaede to be able to leave the house, to go to school, to be comfortable around strangers again. Um, having people reluctant to be her friend works against this purpose. The flip side, of course, 
is that Mai now understands that all her efforts to invest in Kaede and get to know her might get reset to zero. The two of them might turn into strangers. She would have liked to have known that, I imagine. Like, this is not a happy Mai. But that also just underscores the dilemma Sakata faced, that people might have been reluctant to invest in Kaede if they knew, and Kaede's sensitivity means that there's a risk she could pick up on this reluctance. That would just reinforce her self-consciousness and her doubts about getting close to other people. Sakata even explains that seeing her become friends with everyone made it hard for him to speak up. I wonder too if his attachment to current Kaede is why he is so amenable to Kaede taking her time. I truly believe he wants the best for her, but it takes her getting upset about giving up, both last time and this time, for him to push her further. Some part of him may very well dread the day when her memories return because of what that might mean. However, when her distress reaches a fever pitch, whether last time's fear of not being able to leave ever, or this time's weeping at the street corner, it pushes Sakata to make sure she doesn't stop short, even if that means tricking her. Perhaps Sakata was emboldened by the previous instance when he tricked her to going outside. Um, after all, she was not mad about it once she realized what happened, but joyous at having succeeded. Since she gets stopped short from making it to school despite how much she wants to, he comes up with an elaborate ruse. A trip to the zoo scratches another goal off the list, it rewards her for all her effort to be able to go outside, and it distracts her from the turmoil of the day. He even buys an annual pass to get her thinking about future visits, future successes, very similar to Mai's great move of giving Kaede a ton of outfits to look forward to. Then he leverages her ignorance of the city layout to bring her right up to her school before she has a chance to dread it or be stressed out about it. And just like with stepping outside, once she's actually there, the worry disappears. In fact, it seems like it is the anticipation or fear of the different milestones that causes her problems, not actually reaching them. It's just like how she was anxious about going to the beach last time, but completely carefree once they arrived. That is an understandable pattern, really. Uh, fear of the unknown is usually greater than fear of the known, and so it was consistent to have her always worry about each step until she took it, after which she stopped worrying. What was not consistent, however, was when her bruising would or wouldn't show up. How do we parse this mystery? We've had four instances that have occurred in this arc. One was last episode, after the first time she answers the phone, the excitement or stress of which causes her to pass out. This time we see it happen twice in the present and once in the past. It happened sometime between the beach trip and the next morning, and it happened in real time when Kaede was trying to force herself to go all the way to school, both in the elevator on the way down and when she finally got stuck on the street corner. The other instance we see was in the past, on the day that her mother exhibited symptoms of her own mental illness. Now these are all stressful moments, but they haven't been the only ones, right? Going outside that first time didn't cause bruising, nor going to Mize or to the local park. Um, even though she was hospitalized this time after the note triggered a memory, there's no indication that she had bruising from that event, nor from going to the zoo or buying her own pudding or even from sneaking inside the school after dark. 
All of those are arguably more stressful situations than that first phone call with Mai, so it can't just be a manifestation of distress. The original bruising and cuts before the memory loss came as a result of bullying, so you would think that some kind of external hostility might be responsible this time, but that wouldn't explain bruising after Mai's phone call, and probably not the time in the past when she was alone with her mother. Now the only thing that occurs to me requires me to make an assumption about that past event, so forgive me if I end up being way off, but it's possible that all of these instances of bruising were caused by situations that resonated with Kaide-san, the personality inside, and had some element of dread to Kaide. They were moments that brought Kaide-san closer to the surface, or closer to taking over, that the current Kaede had time to worry over. She had time to be fearful about Mai's phone call, and answering the call is a key step. It's the first thing that she crosses off her list. Finally, going to school was the last and biggest thing on the list, so freaking out in anticipation of arriving is also consistent. I am guessing that her bruising after the beach trip had nothing to do with the trip, and everything to do with running into Kano-san. She didn't resolve that distress, but the Kaide-san inside may well have recognized her, and that evening, Kaide worried over the person who knew her, but that she didn't know. When she sees the note in the book and has a memory trigger, Kaide doesn't have time to worry or dread, it just connects directly to Kaide-san. Likewise with showing up at the pandas, or finding herself by the pudding vendor, and suddenly realizing she's at school. All of those were surprises, just like Sakata tricking her into going outside. That just leaves the time in her past. This is me extrapolating, but since he found his mother in a state that seems like she was denying that anything was wrong, I'm going to guess that sometime during that day, the mother treated Kaide as though she was Kaide-san, or refused to believe that the current Kaide couldn't remember. It's an instance of Kaide-san and Kaide colliding, but without Kaide making peace with the situation. As far as I can tell then, that is the pattern. The bruising occurs when Kaide-san gets closer to returning in a way that distresses Kaide. Kaide wants to get better, to cross off the goals on her list, but as she says, she has trouble dealing with people who know Kaide-san. She doesn't like being looked at by people who expect to see Kaide-san. When she has time to think about it, this tension distresses her. But when she doesn't have time to think about it, it just becomes something she reacts to and can then cross off her list. Kaide-san is pushing to the surface, but if she has time to fear this, Kaide pushes back, and the result is a bruise. Now, what keeps me from being very certain about this is the nature of adolescent syndrome, and the information we are still missing about Kaide's past. For example, is the memory loss and resulting personality change a symptom of adolescent syndrome, or is it how she is trying to deal with adolescent syndrome? Is her case of adolescent syndrome limited to the physical effects of being bullied, or is the shift from Kaide-san to Kaide part of it as well? I mentioned before that one of the patterns of adolescent syndrome is that in all the cases we've seen resolved, the person suffering the effects wanted something in the same spirit as the symptoms they ended up with. 
Adolescent Syndrome is almost like a monkey's paw version of granting wishes. Mai wanted anonymity. Tomoe wanted to be able to predict how to fit in. Futaba wanted two things that were incompatible, and Noroka and Mai were both a little envious of the other. The solutions they got went way overboard, but that makes Adolescent Syndrome almost like a supernatural version of Reductio Ad Absurdum, of showing the weakness of a belief by taking it to some ridiculous extreme. The really important thing, then, is that we still don't know what Kaede originally wanted. What exactly led to her being bullied and receiving cuts and bruises because of it? One other thing that is consistent in the cases we've seen is that outside attention plays a role in some way, and even seems to be the catalyst. Mai not wanting attention, Futaba wanting the right kind of attention, Tomoe trying to predict what kind of attention, Nodoka being envious of attention, and so on. If I'm right about the past event with Kaede's mother, then all of the bruising instances we've seen also involve her awareness of outside attention. So, perhaps the bruising is still related to adolescent syndrome, but the memory loss is not? Without knowing the origin of all this, um, it's still hard to say. Maybe now that the original Kaede has returned, she herself can fill in our knowledge gap. Now speaking of Kaede-san, just as with Mai and Nodoka during their appearance swap, we once again have our voice talent and animators using their skill to indicate that the character we are used to is currently a different person. That very last scene with Kaede sounds like a completely separate individual. Her attitude and pitch and enunciation are different, the confidence in her voice is different, the casual way she holds herself is different. She's almost saucy with Sakata. They even make sure she answers his question about whether she is still Kaede in a different way, saying Watashi rather than referring to herself in third person as she did when answering that question in the hospital. I think it's kind of interesting that we have three different versions of a mind-body split in our series so far. Futaba had two slightly different but opposed personalities, and they each ended up with their own identical body. Mai and Nodoka took on the appearance of the other, but without any underlying change to their personality, and then Kaede replaced one personality with another, but inside the same body. Considering adolescence is a period of one's life when one's mind and body are both changing at different rates, and often seem to be at odds with one another, I find it rather appropriate that so many of our variations center around some kind of mind-body desynchronization. We also this time got a first hint at what Sakada's own version of adolescent syndrome comes from. His chest wound came right after his mother displayed the first signs of having her own mental break. Now, does this mean it was specifically the loss of his mother that causes this in Sakata? Or just that it was an escalation of the situation to a point that it physically affected him also? Or, since he's never shown any other symptoms we know of, is it possible that his wound is simply collateral damage from Kaede syndrome? Again, we don't know why hers started yet, so this could be way off, but we have seen Sakata be in an odd position for other instances. He was able to see Mai when no one else in that library could, and was the very last person to remember her. We may have chalked that second situation up to how they felt about each other, but they were still strangers when he saw her in the bunny suit. 
Likewise, he was the only other person to retain memories when caught in Tomoe's time loop. It was hand-waved by the butt-kicking episode, but what if both these instances and his chest injury are all a result of him being special in some way that makes him react differently to the adolescent syndromes of those around him? Is that even why Shoko is out there on the beach originally? And why she decides to speak to him and then be there every day? Shoko's own mystery doesn't get that much closer to resolution, though we do get a better idea of why Sakata was so taken with her. I'm sure that story was full of mixed emotions for Mai. The situation with Kaede has put last episode's unexplained letter kind of on the back burner, but I expect it to return to our attention before the finale is over. I'm struck now by the first thing that Shoko ever said to Sakata. Apropos of nothing, she begins telling him about how far out one can see the horizon at eye level. Four kilometers is a tiny sliver of the thousands of kilometers that are actually out there, yet this is as far as one can see on their own. Do you think perhaps she is being metaphoric? That one can only see a small part of the situation at a time, or on their own? Or that one can only see so far into the future, with the rest completely occluded by the part that one can see? She will even later reuse the horizon as an example of the differences between people, pointing out that Sakata can see further than her because he is taller. Maybe he also can see more of a situation than others, enabling him to help them solve problems that they can't manage on their own. Even if they are gazing out to sea, it's a very odd thing to lead with when chatting up a stranger unless it has some other subtext, as I am suggesting. I've said this before, but I also suspect that even though Shoko is a stranger to Sakata at this point, he is not a stranger to her. So, time travel of some sorts? I mean, that would fit into our quasi-physics parallels. Or, instead, to fit into our pattern of mind-body desync, she becomes maybe unstuck in time? with her mental and physical age skipping between different points of her lifespan? Considering the Kaede focus, I expect to only get more questions on this point, um, but I won't be surprised if they set up next year's movie with a stinger right at the end of our finale. So one last thing is that I want to make sure we recognize that Kaede did not walk into our cliffhanger situation blindly. She overheard Sakata mentioning the possibility of her current self disappearing, yet it is after this that she mentions wanting to go back to school, as it is the top thing on her list. I don't know if she assumed her personalities would swap again, or hoped they would, or feared they would, but she walked into this willingly, and even seems to have a sense of urgency that comes from this knowledge. I think we'll have to see her history around the bullying to guess why she gets this new determination. Um, but I will say that considering the personality change, the memory loss was actually a bigger deal than the cuts and bruising from bullying. That ending should have felt like victory, but it doesn't, right? We in the audience find ourselves in a similar bind to Sakata and especially Mai. Kaede-san's return is good on paper, but it fills us with apprehension. Did we just exchange a familiar friend for a stranger? I'm glad we only have to wait a week to find out. 
title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle, script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red, and a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.